Brother Dan will be preaching uh, today, but before he does, let me read from the Word of God. I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 10. I'll be reading from the NIV, and it says, Then after 14 years, I, who is Paul, went up again to Jerusalem this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I, wasn't, I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because one, some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ, Jesus, and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added not, nothing to my, to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with a task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the, circum and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of God. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. You recognize these words? Many of you would recognize these words as spoken by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the end of his famous speech at the 1963 March on Washington for Civil Rights. His words conveyed the joy that freedom brings. But I also think they hinted at the long, hard struggle to get there. You see, these words were spoken almost a full century after liberty was officially declared for African-Americans. Free at last, they would have thought, after the, when the abolition of slavery was passed by Congress at the end of 1865. At last, after centuries of bondage, and enslavement. At last, only to unfortunately be faced with another long century of, of prejudice and injustice. The experience with slavery in the United States teaches us that proclaiming freedom and actually possessing it are two very different things. The reality of freedom is not easily gained and once it is gained, it is very easily lost again. Now, freedom has as, as many joys and as many struggles in the spiritual realm as it does in human society. And Dr. King knew this well because he actually borrowed these words from a famous Negro hymn that they would sing as they, as they picked the cotton on the fields that were owned by their slave masters. And the original meaning of these words had to do not from freedom from the white oppressors, but from freedom from sin 
that is found in Jesus Christ. And it is this freedom, freedom in Christ, that was the Apostle Paul's main concern as he writes this letter to the Galatian church. He knew exactly how precious and how, how valuable spiritual freedom is. He knew the massive price that Jesus paid on that cross to gain that freedom. And he also knew how easy it is to squander that freedom and to return again to spiritual enslavement. And this is why Paul doesn't muck around with his words here, because, you see, the Galatians had believed the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. They had gained true spiritual freedom by putting their faith in Christ, crucified and Christ risen. But now, now they were listening to, you could say they were under the spell of what James last week called these agitators, these false teachers that had come into the church and who wanted to add the law of Moses to the gospel of Christ. And as a result, they were in very real danger of going backwards and becoming enslaved all over again. And so Paul, Paul becomes this freedom fighter for the gospel. He knows that people who want to keep their freedom in Christ have to fight for it. Have a look at verse 5. He says, we did not give in to them, these, these false teachers. We did not give in to them for a moment, he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be what? Might be preserved for you. Notice that the gospel he's fighting for is not merely a truth, but it is the truth. It is this truth that Jesus had in mind when he said these words in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will what? It'll set you free. It is the same truth that Jesus was talking about when he said that he was the truth in John 14, verse 6. There is only one truth. There is one Christ. There is one gospel. Therefore, there is one ultimate freedom worth fighting to preserve. And from Paul's example today, we learn that this price of spiritual freedom, it's constant vigilance. Because it's, it's not enough to just share the gospel. It's not enough to just preach the gospel, as good as those things are. We also have to defend the gospel. We have to fight for the gospel to the very end, to the death. And it's not easy to defend the truth in an age of lies. These days, people want to make up their own good news. They don't want to be told that there is one and only one way to salvation. So therefore, the church is under great pressure to perhaps compromise its message. But for us as a church here in Tungabi, there is one thing that I never want us to give up. One thing that I never want us to lose sight of, and that is the freedom that we have in Christ. Long after I'm gone, I want this church to still be fighting for and defending that truth. Salvation comes only by his death and his resurrection. Let's not let anyone add to or subtract anything from the cross and the empty tomb. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, 
We can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith, and Jesus Christ. And that is that. Amen? You see, Paul would not let himself be deprived of faith in Jesus Christ either. And that's why he went up to Jerusalem to fight for the freedom of the gospel. A bit of background, a bit of context leading up to this Jerusalem visit that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you turn back to the first chapter of Galatians, the Apostle Paul gives us a shortened version of his life before coming to faith in Christ. Have a look at Galatians chapter 1 verse 13 to 15. He says, For you, you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, and he goes on. So Paul is on a road. He's on his way to Damascus. And he's on his way to persecute, to arrest, and probably kill, have put to death Christians. When all of a sudden he has this amazing experience where Jesus appears to him and Jesus opens his eyes to the truth of the gospel. He has this absolutely amazing, miraculous conversion experience. And for the next three years, for the next three years, he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles in Damascus and in the surrounding regions. And it is sometime during this three-year period that these agitators first start to appear, these false teachers. It is during this three-year period that they first start to uh, communicate and to, and to, I guess, formulate their accusations against Paul. And the accusation is this, right? The accusation against Paul is that Paul had received the gospel from the other apostles in Jerusalem, right? Peter, James, John, and the others. But then he had altered the gospel. He had taken away all the Jewish bits from the gospel to make it easier for the Gentiles who he was preaching to. That's the accusation. And so Paul is forced to defend himself. And more importantly, Paul is forced to defend the gospel. Why? Because, as we heard from James last week, the gospel, or the truth of the gospel, means that people's lives are at stake. It means that God's glory is at stake. Listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, right? This is him defending his accusation, right? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather... I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then after preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for three years, only then does he finally visit Jerusalem for the first time. Have a look at verse 18. It says, that, then after three years, this is three years after his conversion, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. Now Cephas is another name for Peter, right? I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only 
James, the Lord's brother, I assure you that before God, that what I am writing to you is no lie. Right? In other words, this was a whirlwind two-week visit to Jerusalem in which I just wanted to get to know and get to meet the Apostle Peter. Oh yeah, and by the way, while I was there, I bumped into James. Right? That's it. That's the only contact I've had, Paul says, with the apostles in Jerusalem. And so Paul returns to Damascus and the surrounding regions and he resumes preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Right now, fast forward 11 years later and this is where we find the beginning of chapter 2 of Galatians. And this is Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. So have a look with me at Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. It says, then after 14 years, so 14 years after his conversion, 11 years after his first visit, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Now from other parts of scripture, specifically from Acts chapter 11, we know that the primary reason that Paul went up to Jerusalem for this visit was to take a monetary gift to the people who had been suffering under a severe famine there and had lost a lot of things and had become poor. That was his primary, even though it doesn't say it here, we know that from Acts 11. But as he's preparing to leave, right? As he's preparing to leave, God reveals to him that there's another reason he wants him to go, right? I went in response to a revelation. He doesn't, doesn't uh, expand on what that revelation was. He doesn't elaborate, but there's no doubt it had to do, or had a lot to do with his accusations that these false teachers were throwing against him. Because these false teachers, it's been 11 years since he first visited Jerusalem. These, these false teachers haven't backed down. In fact, they've gotten more vocal. And unfortunately, they've thrown the church into confusion. Are there two Gospels being preached? Right, this is the confusion. Are there two Gospels being preached? Is Paul preaching one Gospel to the Gentiles? And are the Jerusalem Apostles preaching a different Gospel to the Jews? And if so, if there are two Gospels being preached, which one is the true Gospel? Which one do we follow? I want to talk for a moment about the two men that the Apostle Paul takes with him because these guys couldn't be more different from each other. Firstly, there's Barnabas. Now, Barnabas has this, he's this rich Jewish heritage, right? In fact, he's a Levite. He's from the line of, of Jews who served as priests in the temple, a very, a very esteemed people, a very proud people. And he's now become a devoted follower of Jesus, this is the same Barnabas that we read about in Acts chapter 4 that hears that there are some needy folks in the church at Jerusalem and he immediately, he sells all his property, right? This guy's got some wealth. He sells all his property and gives all the proceeds of that property sale to the disciples. It lays them at their feet and says, here, use this money to help the poor. This is the same Barnabas. This is the same Barnabas that we read about in Acts chapter 9 that after Paul is converted, Paul goes to the disciples and they're scared to death of him because of his background, but Barnabas introduces Paul as a brother. He says, guys, he's cool. He's with me. He's a real believer. 
He's one of us. Barnabas, the rich Jew who has come to believe in Jesus. And then we've got Titus. <laughs> now you've got to understand that for Paul to take Titus to Jerusalem, this was a huge thing. This was a very daring move because Titus isn't a Jew. Titus is a Greek, right? Titus is not circumcised. And if anything is going to enrage these false teachers, it's bringing an uncircumcised man into their holy city. This is just so wrong. See, circumcision meant everything to the Jews. It was a sacred mark of Jewish identity. It was the very symbol of salvation. It determined whether someone was inside the covenant or outside the covenant, whether someone was pure or impure. In the past, if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, he had to be circumcised. No questions asked. It was black and white. This is what the law required. And then Paul comes along with his law-free gospel, preaching the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. And these false teachers are thinking, okay, that's cool. They're all good things. But then he says that Jesus Christ had already met the requirements of the law, so that circumcision now doesn't even matter anymore. What's all this? All it takes to belong to God was faith in Christ. They're not happy with this stuff. You see, Titus served as the perfect test case for the freedom of Paul's gospel. Here was a man who had received and accepted Jesus as his Lord. Did he? Or did he not still need to meet the requirements of the Jewish law to somehow complete his conversion, to somehow seal his salvation? You know, I can imagine poor Titus standing there in this meeting with these great apostles of Jerusalem, the guys who'd personally known and been with Jesus, who'd traveled with him, who'd, who'd, who'd ate with him, who learned from him for three years. And he's standing there, maybe to the side a bit, maybe behind Paul and Barnabas. And he's thinking, man, I don't want to get circumcised now. <laughs> I don't want to give up eating pork. Man, those pork sausages they make in Damascus, they're the best. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to have to familiarize myself and, and, and have to obey the 613 specific laws that the Jews have in their Old Testament. I don't want to have to do all that. All I know is that I love the Lord. I want to serve the Lord because of what he's done for me on the cross. That's, that's it. That's all I know. The circumcision is no longer a hot topic for the church, right? But the deeper issue here is still relevant. For Paul, circumcision meant or symbolized law-keeping in general. You know, we looked at this last week. It's that performance or that spiritual performance treadmill that we get on that goes nowhere. And so the Apostle Paul was fighting for something fundamental to Christianity at all times and in all places. What does it take? What does it take to become a first-class member of God's family? Is it simply a matter of faith in Christ? Or are there, are there other things involved too that we've got to do or not do? You know, for those of you who know me, know that I grew up in a Christian home. I attended a church with my parents as a child, all the way up until I became a Christian myself, in fact, in that church at the age of 20. Now, 
this was a church, a small church of about 50 to 60 people. This was a church predominantly made up of an older congregation. And um, this was a, not an English-speaking church. It was an ethnic-based church. Can I say, use the word wog? <laughs> Everyone okay with that? Yeah, it was a wog church, put it that way. It was basically old wogs. And so we didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't really relate to anyone as I was growing up and, um, and hearing stuff that, yes, I, I knew the language, but I wasn't perfect at it. And, and especially when it comes to a lot of the biblical and theological terms, I just went over my head. But what happened is, at the age of 19, 20, a couple of younger guys had heard about the church. They were from the same background, and they started to come. There was three guys, and one of them was a guy called Angelo. Now, Angelo was a believer. That They were all believers. Angelo had been a Christian for a number of years. He was about four, three or four years older than me. But the problem was, Angelo had long hair. You see? Right? And not only did Angelo have long hair, he had that sort of wiry hair. So not, not only was it long, it was kind of scruffy looking. Right? And that wasn't cool for these old wogs. <laughs> right? Because a Christian is not meant to look like that. Right? Christian's not meant to have a, a man. He's not meant to have long hair or, or tattoos or, or piercings or all this external stuff. And so poor Angelo with his long scruffy hair was kind of, you know, there was a bit of gossip, like, is he really a Christian? And how can he be a Christian? He's got, you, can't, you can't look like a, a man looks, who looks like a woman, long hair, it doesn't work, right? And I was thinking, man, this is just stupid. It's just hair. And I remember one day talking to Angelo at the, at the front of the church. Church is about to begin in a few minutes. And I see my mum walking towards him and I can see she wants to say something to him and I'm thinking man what stupid thing about his hair is she going to say that I'm going to have to apologize to him for later and have to correct what is she going to say to him right and she walks up to him and she says your hair I'm thinking here we go she says you know what Angelo she says don't worry about what the old farts are saying about your hair he goes, I like it. I think it suits you. Keep it long. I was like, what? And she walks away. Like, what just happened? I've got to say, my mum really, really surprised me that day. Right? And as it turns out, Angelo started a Bible study in that church, and he was quite instrumental in actually bringing me to Christ later that year. What does it take to become a first-class member of God's family? The answer is nothing. Because there are no first-class members. There's no second-class Christians. Right? How could there be? Every Christian is saved in the exact same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There could be no discrimination in the church. It doesn't matter how long your hair is or how many tats you've got. The gospel unites people globally like nothing else does. And I saw this played out firsthand in my childhood church. Now, this was a church comprised of Serbians and Croatians. Right? Now, if you know anything about Balkan history, you'll know that despite being neighbours in Europe, despite speaking the same language, having the same, I don't know, the same food, everything, these two groups were mortal enemies. These two groups had been mortal enemies for centuries. I don't even know why. <laughs> there was real hatred. There was real hostility there. You, you taught your child 
to hate the other side from birth. Right? There was a lot of unnecessary bloodshed there. The Croatians are traditionally Catholic, and the, and the, and the um, Serbians are traditionally Orthodox, and, and both sides claim to have the true faith. But now in the church that I'm growing up in, people have left, right? They've left whatever side they're on, whether the Serbs or Crows, both have left their traditional works-based religions behind, right? And they've come into the truth of the gospel. They had become believers, having to dispose of all their long-held prejudices and hatreds that had been there for centuries. Now, of course, it wasn't done perfectly. Of course, I did see some of those racial tensions come up to the surface and boil over at times. And man, did I see some or hear and witness some vicious, vicious arguments. But essentially what I witnessed was two former enemies worshipping together, right? Praying together, fellowshipping together. People who wouldn't even have come near each other before. Unified by the one true gospel that took all of them from slavery to traditions and rituals to complete freedom in Jesus. Have a look at verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. <clears throat> Titus stood before them as an uncircumcised Gentile. But he also stood before them as a man who had been saved by the cross and by the empty tomb. God had accepted him solely on the basis of what Jesus had done for him. And so on this same basis, the apostles in Jerusalem accepted him as a first-rate brother, as an equal with them. The Jerusalem apostles had grasped what Paul calls the, what Paul calls the truth of the gospel. The truth that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Gentile believers were no longer impure, right? They were no longer idolatrous pagans, but they were now fellow members of Christ's family. Jews and Gentiles, Serbs and Croats, united by one gospel. I love these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And I love this. In verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Amen? We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem... Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now, when we first read this, I know when I first read it, read it, it, it kind of sounded a bit hostile from Paul, right? But I think that's because of the way we sometimes read it. Because let's keep in mind that the false teachers that had infiltrated the church, they had elevated these Jerusalem apostles. That They had elevated their status. They were saying, these guys are the big guns. These guys have the right gospel. They're the ones who spent time with Jesus. Right? 
Effectively saying they had the right gospel and Paul had the wrong one. Paul knew that he wasn't one of the, one of the original 12 disciples. He knew that he wasn't one of the companions of Jesus during his earthly, earthly ministry and that they were. But he also knew that those facts didn't make them a higher authority. Right? Paul had respect for these guys. Absolutely. How could you not? But he wasn't intimidated by them. He didn't make a fuss over their credentials. Why? Because it says God does not show favoritism. But the important thing here is not what Paul thought about them, but what they thought about him and, and, and what they thought about the gospel that he had now come to present before them. This is the gospel I preach and have been preaching to the Gentiles. So those who were held in high esteem, they added nothing to my message. They added nothing to Paul's message. They, they didn't amend it. They didn't have to tweak it. They didn't have to alter it in any way. They didn't even have to give their stamp of authority on it. They simply accepted it as true, the way it was. They added nothing to my message. Verse 7, on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. You know, even though it doesn't say it here, I reckon that, that this group of men in this meeting, at the end of the meeting, I reckon they would have, I reckon they would have rejoiced in the successes of the others. Right, they, weren't, they weren't interested in building their own little kingdoms. The apostles didn't envy Paul's success as a missionary. On the contrary, it says, they recognized that I had been entrusted to, by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. You see, these guys knew the work of God when they saw it. And what they also understood is that the gospel is a partnership. Have a look at verse 9. James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. You see, this was more than just a handshake. Right? This was a symbolic gesture of partnership in the gospel. The one true gospel. The gospel that unifies. The gospel that's worth sharing the gospel that's worth preaching, the gospel that's worth defending and fighting for to the death. And what this gesture also done, it also completely discredited the false teachers. Right? It discredited them, it isolated them, because they could no longer claim to represent Peter and James and John and the other apostles in Jerusalem. Right? By including Paul and Barnabas and saying, yeah, you guys are good, you guys are but preaching the same gospel we are, the one true gospel, and by especially including Titus in with that group as well, with them, the Jerusalem apostles were excluding those false teachers. See, by the time Paul's visit to Jerusalem was over, he had won his fight for spiritual freedom. Titus, his Gentile convert, had been welcomed into, into the fold. And, and, and Paul himself received his commission to preach to the Gentiles. 
and that was acknowledged as being from God. He had successfully defended the gospel truth that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you may ask yourself, well, that's all well and good, but what difference does it make? Why is this so important? Well, it was really important to Paul. It made a massive difference to him. In verse 2, he says, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Right? Now, I don't think that there was any doubt in Paul's mind whether or not he had the right gospel. He knew he had the right gospel because he had received it from Jesus himself and had been preaching it for more than a decade. He didn't need the Jerusalem apostles to reassure him that he had the right gospel. Paul's concern didn't have to do with his own commission, but it had to do with the church's commission, right? Because unless he and the other apostles were all preaching the same gospel, the church would never fulfill its mission to the world. In particular, Paul was worried about a permanent division between Jew and Gentile, right? And to describe his concerns, Paul uses the illustration of a race, a foot race, like a relay race, where you pass the baton to the, to the other person. Paul knew that he could complete his leg of the race, but he needed to be certain that the apostles in Jerusalem were also carrying the gospel baton. Otherwise, his efforts would be wasted and the church would never make it to the finish line. So imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment what would have happened if Paul had lost his fight for freedom. What would the church look like today? If Paul had failed, if he'd failed to defend his gospel to the Gentiles, for us, we would have to become Jews before becoming Christians. It's, it's kind of confusing there, doesn't it? We would have to follow the law of Moses right down to the very last detail. Our salvation would depend on things like being circumcised, like keeping the Old Testament, the dietary laws, and all the other obscure regulations that we find in Leviticus. We would be imprisoned, almost, within the Jewish culture. Now, there's nothing wrong with Judaism as a culture. God never asked the Jews to leave their ethnic identity behind. It was fine for them to continue to be circumcised and to follow the law of Moses, as long as they understood that they were not saved by those things. So Paul correctly understood that the Gentile question raised in this passage would affect the entire future of Christianity. It was massive. Because if the false teachers had their way, Christianity would just become another Jewish sect and not the good news for the entire world that it is today. But by the grace of God, Paul won his fight for the freedom of the gospel. Gentiles were accepted in the church on the basis of the gospel alone. I love that Paul was able to later write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, these famous words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And yet this fight for freedom in Christ will not entirely end until Christ returns to make us free forever. 
For this reason, the gospel, the gospel still needs freedom fighters today. Besides Paul, one of the greatest freedom fighters was Martin Luther, the reformer, who wrote these words. He said, The issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Saviour of the world. Then God is a liar, for he has not lived up to his promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy. For by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness and eternal life. So church, these things are as worth fighting for today as they were to the Apostle Paul and as much as they were to Luther. The gospel needs to be shared, absolutely. The gospel needs to be preached. It needs to be at the center of every ministry that we do here in this church. But to preserve the freedom that we have in Christ for us and for our future generations and to promote the unity that allows, look around you, that allows this many colors and this many cultures and this many people from this many backgrounds to come together as one family under Christ. If we're going to still preserve that, then the one true gospel also needs to be defended and it needs to be fought till the very end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to, uh, we want to thank you that uh, we have the gospel. Uh, we have the, the one true gospel, Lord, as, as, as uh, told to us, preserved by our forefathers and told to us in your precious word. Father, let us never lose sight of that. Let us never add or subtract anything from it, but let us contend, let us defend and fight for the gospel as it is, life-changing, life-transformative, pure and simple. And uh, Father, we just thank you that we have that here in this church. Father, we pray that the gospel, as it should be, will be at the center of every single ministry that we, that we uh, carry on with here. And that the gospel will be preached from this pulpit uh, faithfully and without anything added or subtracted from it. And Father, in, in Jesus' name, we pray for these things. Amen.